Hello, and welcome to Research Software Engineering Stories. This episode of RSE Stories is brought to you from the UK and Europe, in collaboration with the Society of Research Software Engineering in the UK. My name is Peter Schmidt, I'm a Research Software Engineer at the University College of London, and I will be your host for this episode. For this episode, we go again to Australia to meet with Michelle Barker. Michelle is the director of the Research Software Alliance. She has extensive expertise in open science, research software, digital workforce capability and digital research infrastructure. As a sociologist, Michelle is passionate about building collaborative partnerships to achieve system change. Hello, Michelle. It's such a great pleasure to have you here today and welcome to the show. Michelle, how did you become the director of the Research Software Alliance? Thanks, Peter. That's a great question to start us off. I uh, became the director because I was one of the co-founders of RISA uh, in 2018. Uh, so RISA came about because a small group of us had been talking about the need for, for a coordinating body to, to achieve the common goal of having research software recognised and valued as a fundamental and vital component of research worldwide, and that in fact became RISA's aim. Uh, so we ran some community events um, at uh, other software conferences that were happening around then uh, to see what other organisations might be interested in coming together to work together collaboratively to achieve some higher level strategic goals. So there's always been lots of uh, fantastic efforts in the software community. Uh, there's discipline efforts like Elixir in, in bioscience. There's national programs like the UK uh, RI the Netherlands eScience Centre. Uh, there's initiatives that focus on specific issues, uh, such as the uh, Research Software Engineering Society for Careers or the Software Sustainability Institute uh, for Sustainability. Mm. But uh, they, they weren't coming together uh, regularly to think about how they could influence uh, the bigger picture. Uh, so everyone agreed that it would be a great idea to form, and uh, we did. And then we were fortunate enough to get some funding from the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation, uh, which enabled my appointment as director earlier this year. Congratulations for that. <laughs> um, could, you, uh, could you describe your work at RISA and what are your current top priorities for the organisation? Yeah, we break down the work that we do in, into three different types of initiatives. Uh, so policy infrastructure and people. In terms of policy pieces, some of the work we've had ongoing is to influence some of the OECD conversations that have been happening. Uh, they have a committee for science and technology policy that have been working on a revision of uh, a recommendation on access to publicly funded data for science. And a recommendation from the OECD is something that becomes soft law for member states. Uh, so they were revising a, a recommendation from the early 2000s, which talked about how uh, to enhance data access. And uh, we've made it able to have some input so that now that software uh, will be included in that definition as, as the revision comes out. Similarly, we've been trying to uh, engage with the current UNESCO consultation on open science uh, to make sure software is accurately represented. Uh, in terms of infrastructure, one of the main pieces, infrastructure uh, we take as referring to physical infrastructure, and we're all familiar with the software repositories and registries, but it can equally apply to uh, frameworks or standards and guidelines. So we've been uh, facilitating a, a, a working group with Force 11 and the Research Data Alliance to think about how the FAIR principles uh, should be applied to software. 
And in terms mm-hmm. of the third area, people, uh, this is an area we're still developing. We're in the early stages of conversations with groups like the Society of Research Software Engineering or RSE uh, and the Carpentries, Academic Data Science Alliance, uh, those types of organizations to see what, what kind of initiative we might want to do together there. Right. I think you're not a stranger to this kind of organization and leading organizations like that, because I see from your biography that you were the former director of the Australian Research Data Commons and leading strategic planning for the Australian government. Could you give us a brief overview of that? Yeah, certainly. I was one of the directors. There's, there were five directors who sat under the executive director. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had two different roles at, at different stages over my four-year period there, which ended last year. I spent the first couple of years as a director of software. It wasn't called the Australian Research Data Commons uh, until recently. It was a conglomeration of organizations before that that some of the listeners might have heard at, heard of. Uh, anyway, I was the director of, of software and I managed a $40 million investment program to develop research software infrastructure in Australia. Uh, so that was an excellent background for taking up this role in RISA. I think your profile on RISA also mentions achieving system change. And I, I would be quite interested to find out what aspects of the system change you have in mind and why you think that change is necessary. Yeah, system change is something that I'm really passionate about. And in this context, I'm particularly interested in how we create that environment that recognizes and supports software. So we have a lot of the pieces uh, that we need in place, but how do we bring them all together as a critical mass mass to really change uh, research culture in the mainstream? So when I think about these kind of issues, I often use change management models like Cotter's change management model, uh, which you can think use apply to RISA as a whole, but also you know to individual projects or even any idea that you're working with. And so, if we think about those kind of steps, uh, Cotter's model suggests that you start by creating urgency for change. And the mm. software community is, is lucky that we have fantastic work that's been done by organisations like the Software Sustainability Institute. Uh, where they've done research that shows that 92% of researchers said software was important for their research, uh, those kind of statistics. And, uh, in fact, Risa wrote a blog a few months ago where we summarized a, a whole range of those kinds of articles uh, so that people could use those in their own internal arguments when trying to uh, get change in their own environments. Uh, there's other parts of a change management model, like creating a steering committee, identifying early adopters, uh, running pilots for short-term wins, and then trying to take those gains uh, in, into the mainstream to, to achieve the, the bigger change in, in research culture. Uh, so I often use that as a model for thinking about the projects that uh, Reese is running. All right. So you mentioned the research work in helping out this to bring about this change. So could you explain one concrete example where this is happening? A good example is that uh, RISA coordinated the software section of a recent publication by the RDA, the Research Data Alliance. Uh, the document mm-hmm. was called The COVID-19 Recommendations and Guidelines for Data Sharing. Uh, and RDA initiated this work in March uh, when I think it was the European Commission asked them to provide some guidelines for dealing uh, with data sharing in this current challenging situation that we have from COVID that could be implemented quickly and were particularly relevant to health practices. And we were very uh, appreciative that RDA was open to the inclusion of software. Uh, so we brought together 45 community members to write a software chapter in, in very tight timelines. 
because whilst a lot of the document focuses on data sharing, of course, it's equally important to put forward some key practices for the development and reuse of, reuse of research software, uh, because doing so facilitates sharing and accelerates the production of results in, results in response to uh, COVID-19 in the same way that data sharing does. Uh, so th this was a fantastic outcome for us to have this chapter that uh, makes some recommendations uh, for policymakers, for funders, for publishers, and also for researchers. Nothing like this existed uh, that was really promoting mm. uh, the importance of software sharing for COVID. There's some articles here and there in, in journals like Nature and Science that particularly focus on the importance of sharing modelling software or, or uh, um, some other pieces like that. But there was no overarching guidance uh, for those groups, for funders and policymakers, publishers, et cetera, on small changes that they could make quite quickly now uh, that would an increase uh, the reuse and potentially enable accelerated and, and reproduci reproducible research that we need at this time. So how do you see policymakers responding to your suggestions and your guidelines? At the moment, the document exists and there's been a lot of publicising by uh, RDA and other groups uh, in, into a range of forums simply to disseminate it. That's the first step to try and get to some dissemination. Uh, and now there's some thinking about how we can bring together some use cases uh, where we do know of adoption so, for example, I, I know that at least informally that the UKRI founded a useful document, a software section, quite useful in thinking about how they uh, advance some of their COVID-19 funding. Uh, so uh, RDA is thinking about how they formalise collection of that to show some of the impact. Uh, and it's also useful to think about if there could be another step getting signatories, for example. Uh, the Wellcome Trust in March or so released a the document around the principles of data sharing in COVID-19, which built on some work they'd done in 2016. Uh, but what was valuable about this uh, 2020 iteration was that they got 150 signatories to it, uh, a lot of publishers and, and funders who committed to those principles of data sharing. RDA is also thinking about, is there another step possible here uh, to really make sure that uh, groups are engaging in it by uh, getting signatories to it. Data sharing, are we talking about the sharing of epidemiological models, which is something that you mentioned specifically, or what kind of data sharing do you have in mind there? Yeah, the RDA uh, report that I, I'm talking about has five different sections, and epidemiological data is, uh, is one type, clinicals another uh, and there's three others that I, I can't remember offhand. Uh, but certainly those are some of the major groups uh, where um, information sharing is, is most critical. But uh, thinking around that is widening. Obviously, economic modelling is becoming uh, very important at, at the moment. And it'll be interesting to see if the discussions on, on data sharing and hopefully on software sharing at some stage as well uh, really expand uh, to include those kinds of types of data as well. COVID-19 has obviously thrown quite a spanner into our work. And how much do you think this set back the work that research software engineers do? Or does it actually, in fact, also open up opportunities? 
It certainly had impacts, uh, as for many of us, that uh, particularly research software engineers are having to do uh, some more work. Those that particularly work in the biology or, or life sciences communities have had some more demands on their time as they uh, work in research teams that are trying to directly respond to the COVID challenges. That certainly affected a lot of those people individually. As a group, I think there has been some silver linings for this community from COVID in that COVID, as I think many of the listeners would understand, has increased understanding that open science is critical, uh, that researchers need to collaborate more and more quickly than they ever have before. Uh, and this underscores the need for strategic approaches uh, to strengthening digital capacity and skills. Uh, so there's been a lot of focus on enabling open access to research data uh, and software, uh, but also on thinking about the skill sets we needed. So in the longer term, uh, hopefully that will translate into more thinking about the importance of research software and collaboration on it and the skill sets uh, that we need in the community, which is often through people like research software engineers or people who at least uh, have a research software engineering function uh, in their broader role. Uh, so I think in the long term, yes, that, that will be beneficial in increasing awareness and uh, hopefully prioritising that uh, going forward. I think that's a nice segue into my next question, because you chaired the OECD Digital Skills and you chaired the OECD Digital Skills for Data Intensive Science. Could you give us a brief overview of what that role entailed and your work there? The OECD uh, has a, an arm called the Global Science Forum, which runs several international expert groups a year. And I've just finished two years as chair as the group on digital workforce capability building and skills for data intensive science. And the outcome is a report that looks at the human resource requirements for research conducted in the public sector and the related uh, challenges and training needs to build digital workforce capability. The report identifies a range of areas in which change is needed and, and one of the most interesting outcomes was that the work had initially focused on skills and training, uh, but by the uh, end of many case studies and workshops, et cetera, we really realised that thinking about how to upskill both researchers and also research support professionals like data stewards and, and research software engineers is only one piece of the puzzle, uh, that equally you need to think about how that training is going to be provided, that you need a, a pool of trainers and there's accreditation needed there. Uh, you need development of the communities, um, of the learners, of the trainers and of these uh, emerging roles like RSEs, uh, that you need career paths and reward structures in place uh, that are going to motivate people uh, to take those uh, roles and stay in them. And you also need broader enablers uh, such as policy and, and funding environments. And then the report concludes with recommendations uh, to a whole lot of actors in the landscape on what they can each do uh, in their own environment uh, to create some of these. Research software engineers obviously need to have a career path if they want to embark on that road. What we see at the moment, however, is that in many cases, researchers are embedded in the institutes that conducting research and they view themselves as research software engineers, 
but aren't really having roles that reflect that. How can we establish a role and a career path of research software engineers? It's a really challenging question, partly because the answers have to almost be specific to each nation, because a lot of the answer is dependent on it. Uh, the national context of labor laws or employment practices or the ways in which people emerge from vocational education and training or universities with certain types of, of qualifications. We're not really at a point where we can create a, a single university degree or, or whatever where you become a research software engineer and that's uh, then valid internationally. Uh, of course, we're not even close to something like that for teachers or doctors. Uh, so, uh, But it's fantastic that there are a number of different initiatives in different countries and also across borders like the Society of Research Software Engineering that are thinking about this. RISA is certainly interested in, in how we can facilitate these kinds of conversations. And one of the pieces of work that we're doing, as I mentioned earlier, we're uh, facilitating with Force 11 and RDA a, a FAIR for Research Software uh, Working Group, uh, which is enabling a whole lot of conversations to take place that by uh, middle of next year should have a community agreed a community agreed definition of how we apply the FAIR principles uh, to research software. So when those principles are, are agreed, then obviously there'll be a lot of thinking about how we implement that, how we get the research community to adopt those and build. And if we look at how FAIR data has evolved over the last uh, several years, we can see they've then developed a whole lot of different areas, indicators and metrics and maturity models, uh, but also career profiles and reward structures are part of that. So RISA is beginning to coordinate a roadmap of all the different pieces that will be needed to be thought about in more detail as to how implement uh, the FAIR principles for software. And career paths and reward structures are certainly part of that. Uh, so the contribution we're making at the moment is, is to begin conversations about who are the different people working in each of those areas and how could they think about coming together and uh, then making a joint plan for the next few years on how they achieve what needs to be achieved and what could be the funding sources for, for, for that. One question that I have, uh, you mentioned Force 11 uh, several times. Could you explain a little bit more what Force 11 is? Yeah, so Force 11 is a scholarly communications institute. So, so they look at a whole lot of different parts of the scholarly sector that supports open science. And they've particularly done quite a bit of work on software citation. Uh, what are some guidelines for that? Uh, they've published uh, some principles and now looking at adoption, but they have broader interests in how uh, software could be implemented to support scholarly communications. Uh, so when we formed the, the Fair for Research Software Working Group, we wanted to get uh, a number of, of major players in the community to come together, uh, A, to, sh to show to the research community how important this was, uh, that some of these big groups could come together. You know, Research Data Alliance is involved and has 10,000 members to get some of these different players together to show the importance, but also then to have a wide range of, of audiences that we could disseminate uh, because it's very important that we have widespread consultation on these topics uh, and equally important then when some principles are agreed uh, that we can disseminate them widely so that we can then accelerate to that point of getting the benefits of having them adopted and implemented. 
What role do you think that research infrastructure plays in advancing the digital skills and the role that RSE plays? And what uh, role does the RISA Institute do in that aspect? I guess I'm very familiar with large research infrastructures uh, because that was uh, the organization that I was involved in in Australia, the Australian Research Digital Commons, which was an e-infrastructure, but was also uh, part of a group of other uh, national uh, research infrastructures in particular disciplines. I think we're very fortunate that in many countries there have been significant investments in those large research infrastructures. And so for people in at least some disciplines, there are some good methods for even basics uh, like data archiving and data sharing and uh, data interoperability and some fantastic online uh, software platforms where analytical tools are provided Uh, for use by many different members of the community wherever they are in the world. So a lot of those resources exist, but there's always more and more need for those to be developed. But I think there's also infrastructure needed in areas like software repositories and registries, and that's probably an area that has had less funding uh, and less thinking about overall and coherently. So, so we do now have some repositories Uh, and registries, organizations like Software Heritage are, are a great example. It probably needs to be uh, some evolution of those, particularly as the FAIR principles come into being for software. And uh, we want to think about how we create some of those kinds of infrastructure that are FAIR. So what role does the private sector actually play in this? Because we're talking about building infrastructure, we're talking about funding, etc. Do you aim for a partnership between research and companies? Or is this sort of exclusively funded by public sector? I think it's an interesting question of how the private sector will fit with the research software communities. So we have some of the big technology companies, of course, having an interest in, in software as it relates to cloud infrastructure, because that's where their market is. I think that some of those large technology companies will create more of the infrastructures uh, We often talk about science gateways or virtual research environments is the European term. And a lot of these have been public funded uh, through national investments. Uh, but I think we'll probably see some of the big technology companies starting to develop those as well. I think it's still an open question whether they're going to develop those in isolation and almost in competition to the ones that are publicly funded or, or if partnerships are, are possible. Uh, I certainly hope that uh, partnerships are, are possible and, and we do go down that path and in a way that has strong governance uh, that uh, doesn't uh, suffer from some of the problems that I think the research data community uh, has when uh, some of its infrastructure is led by commercial companies. Uh, I think there's hope that we might be able to do it a little bit differently in, in research software. So. Right. I mean, you mentioned some kind of issues that the research community has with private companies. Could you sort of highlight some of them that we might be able to address in future? Yeah, I mean, it's the kinds of issues around open access. Projects like Plan S are trying to solve. Publicly funded research has been creating outputs which uh, then go into publishers who use it for private gain to create private uh, income and it doesn't necessarily flow back. So we need to create a, a value chain that ensures that 
uh, research software created, you know, is also somehow remains in in openly available, and that any kind of income or, or benefits that are generated from that are flow back into the research community. My next question is a bit unrelated to our discussion so far. Offline, before we did this recording, you. Uh, pointed me to Laura Molloy, who published a photo essay on CoData.org called "Humans of Data," and I'm quite curious about that. And it makes a really fascinating read. And data science is, of course, big these days, but unfortunately not always beneficial. So, how can we bring the human back into data? Yeah, fantastic question, and uh, one that I guess really enables me to talk about uh, an area I really love, which which is how how do we get the people that we need to uh, enable open science to happen? So I think fortunately we're at a stage of evolution uh, in the open science community, or more broadly in the research community, where we are bringing the people back, both to data and equally to software. Uh, so when I started in the Australian Research Data Commons in two thousand and fifteen. I think we were just coming to the end of a phase where there was a lot of investment in big in online infrastructures, and the mentality was if we build it, they will come. And that was just changing where people were beginning to realize that actually you need community involvement in in the development of those infrastructures from the beginning, both to enable the sustainability, uh, but to increase the impact of it. And I certainly think in the last few years we've seen that change, so that. Uh, co-development is something that any any project would think about very early on, if not as its um, foundational principle. And then I think just in the last year or two, we've then started to make that shift to really, really understanding and having an increased focus on the fact that yes, and now we need the people uh, with the skills uh, to develop those infrastructures and those communities and to maintain them. Examples such as the OECD uh, Global Science Forum, which is a group of national uh, science ministers deciding to prioritise thinking about how we upskill the research sector in, in digital skills uh, and other other things happening now that uh, make me think that uh, we're in an era now where that focus is, is now going to become much more common. You know, we see things like the Declaration on Research Assessments or, or DORA, as it's called, which was agreed in 2012. Uh, which recommends that research assessment consider the value and impact of all research outputs, uh, um, not only uh, publications, but also including data sets and software. So that's been around since 2012. But how we make the shift in culture to recognizing the outputs of people who aren't publishing, but maybe creating uh, things like software, uh, we're only seeing, beginning to see uh, more of a focus on the implementation of that more recently. So thank you very much for all these answers. That was great, Michelle.、Um, I'd like to come to the end of the podcast now with two questions, and one of which is that if you look far ahead into the future and you look back to your career, what do you hope you'd have achieved by then? I guess we would have achieved the aim of research that we'd have a research system that supports and recognises software as a fundamental and vital component of research. A research software engineer would be part of a research team. Yeah, they would be a recognised part of the team. A and, and we obviously have already achieved that in, in some communities,、um, but that that team would have the resources that they need、uh, to support that research software development, including. 
uh, staff with the right skills. And those RSEs would work in an environment, a research institution, uh, that adequately supported uh, and hired and promoted the people who had those skills and had uh, career pathways that uh, motivated them and enabled them to achieve the same kind of outcomes that researchers have uh, for many years. Uh, and more broadly, the environment would be one where government funders recognised and promoted software. Uh, for example, they'd support the funding of maintenance of critical research software. Uh, and we'd have an environment where publishers uh, supported it. So publisher policy uh, would require that software, citation, software citations must be included in publications. We'd, I'd just like a future where all of that was the norm and uh, therefore we would be fully achieving the aims of open science and creating more efficient, uh, reproducible and trustworthy science. And I think we're on that pathway. So I just hope it's not too far ahead. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so too. Yeah. Great answer. Thank you, Michelle. And finally, what do you like to do uh, in your spare time? Yeah, I one of, one of my superpowers is, is if you like, is that I'm a social connector, which means that I love networking and uh, connecting with people and figuring out how I could collaborate with them on something, but also how I could connect you know, them with other people so that uh, we can all benefit from each other's expertise. And so I'm really fascinated by this challenging situation we find ourselves in from COVID where we're not having the same kind of face-to-face -face interactions that we used to. And in fact, I've been working remotely for a long time and am very good at networking even when working remotely because I've had a lot of experience in developing skills in that. Uh, but even I notice uh, that it's harder to, to build those relationships and to have those serendipitous coffee conversations that we so mm. often do at, at conferences. Uh, so I, I've been playing around with reading up on, on some of the tools that are coming out from different angles to, to try and improve this. Thank you so much for that great interview, Michelle. Uh, it was such a pleasure talking to you. And I wish you all the best for the future. Likewise. And I look forward to listening to many more of these podcasts in the future, Peter. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show and we would like to see you again in future. If you like this episode, it'll be great if you could leave a review wherever you download your podcasts from. And with that, goodbye.